Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by T-Mobile. T-Mobile for government provides innovative connectivity solutions that help public safety agencies better serve citizens. T-Mobile is America's 5G leader in coverage, speed, and reliability. Plus, they offer tools that help government take advantage of 5G, amazing customer experience, and outstanding value with no trade-offs. To learn more, visit t-mobile.com government. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Luke Myers, the director of the Hawaii State Emergency Management. Uh, in this podcast, we'll learn more about Hawaii's hazards, how they are organized jurisdictionally, and it's different from every other place. I'll tell you that, folks and also how uh, COVID, the pandemic, impacted the state. Well, welcome to the show, Luke. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate the opportunity to be here and to uh, share some of my experiences uh, so far. Okay. Well, great. Uh, Luke, I always like to ask people being interviewed here on the Disaster Zone podcast what their path was into the profession of emergency management. We were just kind of talking about yours before we hit the record button. So you can relay that if you want. But uh, I know a little bit about your journey, but please share your path to end up becoming the State Emergency Management Director for the State of Hawaii. Well, it's definitely been a, a long path. Uh, got a degree in geography with a climate emphasis in the late 90s uh, out here in the state of Hawaii, actually wanted to be a weatherman, but uh, couldn't handle the physics, calculus, and chemistry. My uh, journey included a number of uh, internships and volunteerism in the beginning, uh, relocated after spending some time out here at State Civil Defense in the late 90s with an internship program. I moved to the Pacific Northwest and got to meet uh, uh, you, sir, uh, in your role way back at King County. Uh, did some volunteering with the American Red Cross, uh, then, then the Mount Rainier chapter down in Pierce County. And I think like so many others, you, uh, you make opportunity uh, out of challenges. And in 2001, there was the Nisqually earthquake, which was a pretty big disaster for the Pacific Northwest. Uh, fortunate enough to get a job uh, with FEMA at that time as a uh, disaster assistance employee kind of dating myself uh, with some of these uh, terminology, uh, but got involved in uh, hazard mitigation with FEMA for a short while, uh, changed teams to uh, state emergency management there in Washington in their hazard mitigation grant program, uh, did a tour of duty there and helping administer some of the grant program funds. And then I uh, got to learn about uh, hazard mitigation planning um, and took an opportunity with Pierce County Emergency Management one as kind of an entry level position doing planning and then moving up to a supervisory role. And uh, my role there expanded from 
mitigation primarily to more planning functions, including continuity of government, continuity of operations, and then uh, overseeing recovery for public assistance and individual assistance and mitigation. So really kind of setting the stage. One of my uh, interesting roles at Pierce County, I got to be the liaison for the Puyallup Tribe of Indians. Uh, there in Washington State, uh, there was a contract between Pierce County and the Puyallup Tribe. So really get to look at some of the uh, grant programs and roles as they are applied to a fairly recognized tribe. And this, this, that's before you've had this big surge in federal emphasis on it. Yeah, and it definitely makes you, you, you look at a lot of the rules and regs uh, for the federal programs much differently uh, from a federal tribe perspective uh, versus some of our other partners. They can go directly to the federal government for many, many resources. So. I took the opportunity with uh, City of Bellevue uh, up on the east side there uh, in King County, uh, was the director there for a number of years and kind of my first opportunity to uh, run my own program, uh, be part of a, a large network there in King County, Washington with a number of partners and work with them. And I, I have to say, People don't recognize there's really two major metropolitan areas, I think now in the Pacific Central, Northwest Central Puget Sound. And everybody thinks about Seattle, but only about 10 minute drive due east across Lake Washington is the city of Bellevue. And uh, it's grown significantly even since you've been there, but it's a population over a hundred thousand and very business friendly. So. A lot of companies are uh, relocating to Bellevue, even over uh, Seattle. So it's, it, that was not just a small jump to some small city type of thing. You, you, you went into this, uh, a major metropolitan uh, community. Yeah, and I think that with the, the large corporations that were there and are still there on the east side, uh, really kind of opened my eyes to larger public-private sector partnerships. Uh, and then one of the the most fascinating things about Bellevue is uh, they have a lot of uh, families that come with tech workers. And so it's one of, besides Seattle, one of the most diverse uh, cities in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, you're dealing with families that not only may never experience an earthquake or a winter storm, uh, but they were new to the Pacific Northwest. And then uh, working at that time with the uh, limited English proficiency and English as a second language. So it presented some unique uh, community profile challenges for the number of hazards over there. Okay, and then what happened? Uh, there was an opportunity that opened up in the city of Seattle uh, to uh, do some planning. So I did a bit of a, a lateral move over to the city of Seattle. Um, Bellevue is a, is a very good sized city there in the Pacific Northwest. Seattle is obviously the, the biggest municipality went over there to uh, work with Barb Graff and her leadership team at the time, uh, doing a lot of strategic planning. And at the same time, they were going through their uh, emergency management accreditation program assessment. So I saw that as a, a good building block for what would come down the road. In uh, 2018, and I like to always say, um, opportunities are, are made uh, when there are challenges Hawaii went through some organizational changes following uh, the false missile alert, uh, changeover in the administrator and the executive officer. I applied for the executive officer and wound up getting that in the 
late in the summer of 2018 and uh, relocated uh, back out here to the state of Hawaii. And then uh, my previous boss, uh, Administrator Travis, uh, uh, he stepped down and uh, retired in March of 2020, right as the pandemic was taking hold out here. <laughs> That's a good time. To, yeah. <laughs> good timing, Travis. I got, got the opportunity to move up into the administrator role, uh, supporting the, uh, the tag out here and the governor on March the 16th of 2020. And um, that was the day that the governor declared uh, our state of emergency for COVID-19. So um, that's kind of my, my, my journey so far uh, uh, in this uh, ever-changing field. Okay, well, we'll have to talk after the show about what the future holds then. <laughs> yeah. Because we were, we were discussing before this what the shelf life of a state emergency manager can be. <laughs> on average, and it's uh, about three years. Um, if you look across the nation as governors come and go uh, from that standpoint, but not, not always, but sometimes there are uh, changes that happen. So Luke, what, you know, Hawaii presents some pretty unique challenges that every other state in the union does not have. So what are those in both geography, hazards, and just size and governance model that makes up Hawaii. I arrived here on August 16th, started my job, and uh, about seven days later, Hurricane Lane, which was a category four, was making its approach south of the Big Island. Uh, we have four major counties set, are set across uh, multiple islands. And went to school out here in the 90s, uh, understand supply chain, at least from uh, my limited experience in the Pacific Northwest. I got a presentation on the hub and spoke of commodities come from over 2,500 miles into the city and county of Honolulu, you're on Oahu, and then they go out to the outer islands. And we have very limited capacity from an alternate deep water port perspective. And as Hurricane Lane, the models were showing a direct hit here on Oahu with 130 to 150 mile per hour winds, it quickly began to dawn on me uh, where we sat in the Pacific Ocean and supply chain. And I think that that's one of the biggest uh, community profile attributes of Hawaii is that whether it's a tsunami six or eight hours from now, a hurricane that's moving in, um, if we impact our port system here in the islands, uh, there's a cascading effect on, on every service here uh, in each of the counties. And so that's one of the unique uh, items that, add, that from a capability perspective that we deal with. This was further emphasized during COVID-19, uh, the shipment of personal protective equipment across the globe to Hawaii our infrastructure was up and running, but just getting it here. You have to always think five to 10 to 15 to 20 days out in good times if you wanna get something here, let alone if you're competing against uh, the globe or PPE. So our, our unique position in the Pacific really makes us vulnerable. And there's not much you can do uh, with regards to that. You can have commodities here on islands uh, you can warehouse, you can do those things, but uh, that involves a, a tremendous investment. Uh, there are some capabilities that we're fortunately to have due to our strategic location. We do have a very large military presence 
uh, which we're able to, to leverage uh, during the emergencies. Uh, but obviously that comes with uh, a lot of protocol uh, to, to leverage. From a hazard perspective, uh, we have a number of threats that can impact the islands, both natural and human caused. Uh, tropical systems tend to be the, uh, the big flag for us out here. On average, we have about 3,200 uh, new homes that need to be built each year. Uh, this is before the pandemic, just to keep up. And so when you look at a tropical landfalling system, a hurricane hitting multiple islands and causing a lot of impacts, uh, with our baseline of 3,200, give or take, if you destroyed a lot of homes, residential homes, it really starts to compound long-term recovery. So tropical landfalling systems are probably the, the biggest one out here that makes people pause. But like we saw in Hurricane Lane in 2018 and uh, other systems, uh, one of the other unique characteristics of Hawaii, we have very tall mountain ranges and very sh short watersheds um, versus the Pacific Northwest or other areas where you may have a watershed that may run 10 or 15 or 20 miles. Here are watersheds maybe a mile or two between the crest and the coast. So we get a lot of flash flooding. Um, and in 2018, uh, from a a non-tropical landfalling system, which Lane was, uh, we jumped 50 inches of rain on the Big Island in 48 hours and 25 on, a, on Hawaii. So we can have systems that come by the islands that wring out a bunch of moisture and cause flash flooding and landslides and impacts without ever a direct impact. Is that typically like on the west side of the islands or? It, it actually, it, it just depends on where the storm's set up. Um, and it can be a non-tropical a non landfalling system. In the spring of 2018, uh, we had 50 inches of rain on Kauai, on the North Shore of Kauai. Uh, this past March, uh, we had a, a front set up across the islands and we dumped 20 inches of rain on the North Shore of Oahu in 24 hours. So just basically um, uh, from a meteorologically baseline, Orographic lift with tropical islands can wring out a lot of moisture fast. And there's a lot of conversation about climate change and things of that nature, but basic dynamics of uh, condensation and moisture against uh, tall mountain peaks and short watersheds, you're gonna flood a lot of areas fast. So that has been a marker in these tropical systems. They don't have to make a direct hit in Hawaii to have uh, tremendous impacts. All right, well, play tourist guide for a minute. All this rain you're talking about, I'm on vacation. I got a week to 10 days. I don't want to come when it's raining like that. So what's the best month to go to Hawaii? Uh, now, before we get too far into hurricane season, our wet season, we have a wet season here, not like the Pacific Northwest, but basically runs November to March. So you'll see a lot of flash flooding during that time. Okay. Uh, during our tropical season, um, which really starts to kick in later this month through October, uh, it's more influenced by either remnants of tropical systems uh, or uh, storms that are nearby. So I would say uh, May through July is probably the, the best time to avoid uh, severe weather and flooding. Okay, all right, we, we, we digress there, but tell me about the jurisdictional makeup. I you have the second fewest counties in the nation. 
Yeah, so from an emergency management perspective, we have four counties that uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, uh, as an organization, we support. Uh, each of those counties has the authority uh, based under Hawaii Rise Statute 127A to provide full emergency management services. So compared to some other states uh, around, uh, around the country, um, it's less complicated uh, just because of the sheer volume of partners. But at the same time, because each of our counties are islands and Maui County makes up uh, three islands, uh, they have very unique uh, community profiles and characteristics among themselves. So uh, we have work groups, uh, we have uh, standing hazard meetings, standing capability meetings. But the challenge out here is when you're only dealing with four counties, you tend to uh, pick on the same four partners uh, and their, their supporting cast over and over again. I think the other very kind of unique thing about Hawaii that is really played out here, and uh, it's been a, a big lesson learned for me as administrator in the, since March of 2020 with the pandemic, because of the standing nature of our 17 cabinet agencies, the state agencies across, across the counties, they are automatically embedded with the counties. So uh, we have one school district, uh, the State Department of Education, and they have area superintendents within each of the counties. So they are in the county EOCs when an incident stands up. The same thing with the State Department of Transportation, State DLNR, DHS, you name the state agency, all of their standing postures day to day set that stage for when we respond. So it really makes uh, island to island coordination or county to county coordination or coordination back with uh, kind of the larger state agencies here on Oahu. Uh, that's an interesting wrinkle that I necessarily didn't see uh, in some of my previous experiences, but it really makes you think about that day-to-day -day relationships that we always talk about emergency management. So a lot of our state agencies have very close relationships with the counties and they may start uh, responding uh, to an incident directly with the state agency before they would come to our state warning point uh, for resources. So that's something that, uh, flooding, landslides, uh, tropical systems, COVID, has really been a, a different experience than I've seen in some other states. Okay. Okay, now this is a, a test. You may know this, given from the Pacific Northwest. So which is the state with the uh, fewest counties, even less than Hawaii's four? Alaska? You are correct. Alaska has for $500, Alaska has no counties whatsoever. So, all right, why don't we uh, switch gears here a little bit. And you mentioned it, um, the uh, errant warning message that went out. I mean, it was national, international news that came out about, about that. And I say, you know, life goes on. The average people have all forgotten about that, but I always say that as, if you want to have a very visible mistake being made, do it in a warning message because everybody knows it. I mean, we can do a lot of things where you say, oops, and 
that wasn't right, but nobody knows it. When you do it with a warning message, everybody knows it. So, um, you know, what's been done on your end to correct for that? What, what advice would you give to um, other emergency managers? They can't be, don't send out any warning mes messages. Fortunately, by the time I got here in August 2018, the, the, the January 2018 false missile alert, uh, the corrective actions were implemented. Uh, as we know, with, with alert and warning, um, the longer you wait to respond, whether it's to correct or to cancel uh, or to say the threat has gone, um, the more challenges and you know, the more impacts there can be uh, across the board. Uh, just let alone the public confidence in, in governance. So the HIEMA had already put in a number of, of changes when I came in. Um, basically, one, having an all-hazard alert and warning system. So not just focused on one specific threat, whether it's natural or human caused. Uh, two, having a, a verification of a two-step verification. So if Eric is the primary in the state warning point and I'm there as his uh, threat specialist, being able to validate that message before we send it. And I think the big thing, the big lesson learned uh, for HIEMA in 2018 was having a procedure in place to cancel an alert. Um, it is very challenging when you look at the various hazards uh, across the country, especially flooding. Uh, there are a lot of alerts that are sent out uh, and traditionally many of those, um, they just kind of sunset, there is no recall. So. Um, the, the recall uh, procedure and policies have been in, put in place uh, and we have spent a lot of time and effort in when we bring in new team members using that as a training opportunity uh, in our state warning point. Okay. I believe it provided the country though an opportunity to relook at alert and warning. Um, there have been numerous uh, false alerts across the country since January 18. Uh, we do take notice of those here, uh, looking at the, the reaction of the media. Uh, but from Haima's perspective at this time, that's kind of water under the bridge. I will say, though, um, it did do some tremendous uh, harm to Haima's reputation out here from a state emergency management and, and our role. Um, but since then, there have been plenty of opportunities. We've had nine federally declared disasters since the false missile alert, um, including COVID-19. And Haima has taken a strong leadership role in each of those from a response recovery and mitigation perspective and uh, really solidified ourselves in COVID-19 and supporting uh, my boss, uh, the TAG and, and the governor, uh, building on those lessons learned from the false missile alert and uh, paving a way forward. Okay. And it is, I always say, um, I know you're familiar with the term. Um, a lot of times we, we call it lessons learned. And unfortunately, many times it's lessons observed and not learned. So uh, you guys took it to heart and uh, made some good changes. So, well, um, Luke, we're about halfway through. So we're going to take a very quick break for this message, and then we'll be right back. The Connecting Heroes program from T-Mobile for Government is a 10-year, $7.7 billion commitment to state and local first responder agencies. They have rate plans for every budget to include free unlimited service and plans with 5G smartphones that come free 
with new lines and priority access and preemption for first responders, all on America's fastest 5G network. To learn more, visit t-mobile.com slash connecting heroes. And we are back today talking with Luke Myers. He's the director of Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. And we're going to shift into more recent events, not, not just this week or last month, but certainly 2020 uh, started out with a bang, especially for Luke Myers, <laughs> March 16th, right? The director's resigned. I'm probably the only person that beat that, Barb Graff, long-serving emergency management director for the city sale, who you mentioned. I think she retired, I want to say on Friday, February 4th. Mm. And and then, you know, everybody knows if you're an emergency manager, how you spent the, the last 18 months on that. But So we have the emergence of the coronavirus. How How did that play out? in Hawaii. And um, one of the huge impacts, and I followed this somewhat uh, because I like to see the economic side of things about the tourism industry, which I don't know, you can tell us how big a segment that is, but it's huge. Um, So how did it start out and what were those impacts to tourism? Yeah, any disaster exposes your community profile and Hawaii, like many uh, island uh, economic engines relies on tourism. You've you got to get on a boat to come here. you got to get on a plane. And the other interesting thing about our community profile that, that COVID kind of re-put a spotlight on was that we have had a history here in Hawaii of biological-related uh, hazards impacting the community. So that set the stage with COVID as as many of our partners around the globe were looking at how is it's unfolding. The governor took an extraordinary step here uh, and basically instituted a quarantine, two-week quarantine based on uh, health guidance. If you're coming into our state, you're going to go into quarantine so that if you're bringing COVID in, we're going to mitigate it as much as possible. And so we went from 30 to 40,000 passengers a day into the state, basically down to less than a thousand. So there were many impacts with regards to the economic engine of that type of immediate change. Yeah, I I remember this, I I talked to you sometime during that period. I remember you telling me there were 150 arrivals yesterday or something like that. I mean. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. The, um, the Hawaii tourism side does a great job in marketing and bringing not only visitors from uh, the mainland in Alaska, but we're an international destination. So not only did we have the ramifications and the impacts from uh, our mainland visitors, but also internationally. And so it really, uh, disrupted uh, a lot of fundamentals out here in Hawaii. Fortunately, like many of our, our, our partner states, there's been a lot of federal aid, which has kind of been the lifeline. Our state leadership always looks at the revenues that have come in. 
what, one of the unique things about COVID-19 versus other disasters is uh, we tend to break stuff in other disasters. Uh, the difference in COVID-19 is uh, all of the infrastructure is still there. You just have to open things up. You have to look at the health uh, situation and be able to kind of flip the switch. One of the kind of hidden impacts of COVID-19 is we've lost over a thousand businesses here in the state of Hawaii. We traditionally know that a lot of small businesses can't handle a, a, a small incident, uh, whether that's a week or two without being impacted. So though that there's been a lot of federal assistance, we've lost uh, a lot of local businesses here during this incident. We've also had uh, a lot of loss of life, uh, a little over uh, 520 individuals lost their life to COVID-19. Uh, that may not seem like a lot uh, to many of those that are listening to this outside of Hawaii, but uh, we've worked very closely with the Department of Health and other state leadership. We don't have a lot of bed capacity uh, across our counties. Uh, case in point, Kauai usually has about 11 ICU beds. And as we tracked daily, and we're still tracking, well, we're one of the few states that are, are still operational at this time, all those cases and all those transmissions put a very big um, burden on a very stressed hospital system throughout the state. So we looked at all those and uh, the mitigation measures that have been put in place basically by keeping people in quarantine before they come in have been the, the strongest mitigation measure besides the washing, the masking, and the distancing. One of the unique things that we did though as we saw the impacts last summer, uh, we instituted uh, under the governor's leadership and uh, Director Hart, who's the TAG, uh, the Safe Travels Program. So uh, again, trying to keep the transmission and open up the economy, those are, those are, those are dual-headed uh, items. And so okay. last October, we initiated the Safe Travels Program and you're able to enter the state with a, uh, a PCR test uh, basically saying you are uh, not carrying COVID, you could bypass the exemption, uh, uh, you could get an exemption and come into the state and not be in quarantine. And so how about as far as uh, proof of vaccination, is that part of it? Well, that as the Safe Travels program uh, matured and uh, adjusted, uh, you know, the COVID-19 incident, you have to kind of wait two weeks to a month to see does your policy decision have any uh, ramifications or impacts on what's going on in the scene? So it's a, it's a very different situation than I've seen in my career with other hazards because uh, every month there's a holiday. Every month uh, there's, there's a potential for greater transmission here in the islands. So, uh, since October, we've had some milestones. We've averaged about a, uh, a little less than a million visitors a month. And so uh, most recently on June the 15th, so a good ways into this, they did allow vaccination cards for um, those that are in-state. Uh, so if you got vaccinated in-state to come back, uh, we also dropped the inter-island quarantine and then on July 8th, uh, in the last week here, we, we are accepting vaccine cards from uh, CONUS and the U.S. territories and Alaska. So if you 
if you're completely vaccinated and have your vaccine card, then you get to, using the Safe Travels uh, application, get to uh, go by the, uh, uh, the quarantine process. So we've taken a very conservative approach out here in the state, but ultimately it's protected a lot of life. And as the economy starts to reinvigorate, uh, we're starting to deal with some of those pre-pandemic challenges that we had with tourism uh, that were here uh, in late 2019. Okay. Well, Luke, and, and you're not that young because we talked about how old you were, but I won't tell everybody you're 47. We'll let them guess. So, <laughs> but I do think of you as being indicative of new generation of emergency managers moving into senior positions. I, I think the old dog boomer generation is about gone. You, you just came back from NEMA as you cast your eyes across that group of 50 state emergency management directors. And that's the National Emergency Management uh, Association made up of 50 directors. What do you think? Do you think your age group is now um, in leadership at state level or 50-50 or what? I think it's starting to get there. I, I think that you know, as we have talked, there, there, there's definitely a maybe a three to four year window for a director or administrator in these roles. They're tied to the governor. I do think we're starting to see some change. Uh, some of the baby boomers, some of the ones that have uh, been in the field for three, four, five decades, uh, transitioning out of public safety, which provides an opportunity for myself young anymore but um some you, younger you are in comparison to them <laughs> some younger seasoned individuals to yeah. kind of come into leadership roles and um i think as we as we look at the field though uh and i definitely have always taken this both different ways the breadth of an experience of someone in the field two or three decades is shown in their leadership positions. Uh, emergency management is a very broad field, um, starting you know, way back in the, the late 90s as I edged my way into this field. Uh, there are many career paths uh, one can go into now. And so bringing kind of a fresh perspective, a different perspective into this is important, but I also think it's important to have that kind of large breadth of an emergency management program, uh, whether that's mitigation, whether it's recovery, whether it's how we use technology. Uh, uh, now, that. All right, since you mentioned technology, that's on my list I wanted to talk to you about. And that, uh, let's see, I, I, I know you're not afraid of technology. So what are some of your approaches to using technology? Some people, again, older generation are, are, are afraid of it, um, don't wanna waste money on it, have tried it, and hasn't panned out. Uh, and then the, the other end of the spectrum is we need a technological solution for everything we're trying to do today. So what's your advice on technology? I think the last 18 months has shown that technology and COVID-19 uh, is uh, a very strong capability that we can use. You know, from a director, from an administrator point of view, you know, we're running businesses. And so, one of the great things about emergency management, we sit on a lot of business data. Uh, you choose the, the emergency management function, whether it's alert and warning, whether it's mitigation, preparedness response, uh, recovery, 
training and exercise. There's a lot of business data there behind the scenes that if you can communicate that value to your leadership, to the public, uh, one, you can help reinforce emergency management um, and then hopefully strengthen your program and make your community better prepared. So I do believe that technology uh, is, a, is something that you have to have in your toolkit. I also though believe that uh, through experiences here in Hawaii uh, in the last couple of years and in the Pacific Northwest, that you can invest a lot of money in uh, solutions that uh, may be a great idea of an individual that may not fit. Um, but that technology, uh, if it's rooted to support your, your business products and your services, can pull you forward much faster than paper and pen or some of these other solutions. So I believe that there are some tools out there that, you know, for new emergency managers or those in the field that we, we really need to dive into. Uh, Eric and I have had conversations about uh, big data. And I think we sit on a lot of emergency management, public safety data, but we also rely on data from a number of partners, whether that's hazard data or community profile data. Yeah. Uh, geographic information systems is uh, one of the, the platforms or applications that I, I think that emergency managers uh, should have in their toolkit uh, to help kind of exploit some of this data and tell stories. Uh, we've seen a, a lot of products out there that um, with COVID, there are a number of dashboards and things, just the volumes of data that we're responsible for and using uh, these platforms to tell stories in a way that whether they are state leadership or someone out in the general public to quickly condense information, uh, aggregate it, and then spin that back around in a digestible way. I think some of the GIS platforms are very important. Okay. Yeah. So, so those are, those are some of the, the important ones. I, and that, that kind of gets into a, another area that, you know, emergency management is not only responsible for natural and human cause under the human cause, there's a whole bunch of evolving threats. And some of these are not new. Um, but the cyber, the cyber threats that we've seen in the, uh, the last half year or so, the ransomware, the colonial pipeline, uh, some of the impacts on uh, not only uh, the United States infrastructure, but others, cyber is something that as you use technology, there's a greater exposure that we not only have from a government perspective, but our private sector partners do too. Yeah, I just made this little pink sticky note before our call, and it says next gen, meaning emergency managers, uh, emergency management need a cyber focus that, you know, that's gonna be, need to be a piece of it. And right now, I think a lot of emergency managers, especially older folks, think that's, you know, someone else's issue, but that's as much our issue today as hazmat is, or flooding, or that because of the economic impact and cascading impacts that you'll see from a cyber incident that shuts down the electrical grid, whether it's a ice storm or cyber attack, when the electricity stops, you're, you're at the forefront of responding. Um, so I, I'm, I'm all in with you on the, the cyber. Yeah, so I think it's gonna, 
it'll be, it'll be an inch how the government decides to, um, you know, we have a lot of businesses in floodplains and we have the flood insurance program and we promote preparedness with businesses and floodplains. Um, but ultimately in the end, if, if I have a business in a floodplain, it's up to me to follow regulations to mitigate my losses. Uh, whether that's a, a, a big business or a little business, uh, the cyber threat, um, as we kind of mature our response and our coordination recovery and mitigation measures for that, um, I, I think we, we, need more, we need more guidance from the federal government on how that's gonna play because so much of the infrastructure is, is on the private side. So um, we can take care of it from a government side and be responsible. Uh, but when you start looking at some of the, the private sector side, it, it kind of opens up a much larger uh, playing field. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Um, use that dirty word, mitigation, is that, you know, the average citizens think about uh, emergency management as a disaster response aspect, and then people with a little bit more no knowledge know, well, we're doing a lot of planning before that. Um, but when we talk about building for disaster resilience, I'd say you spell that like you spell mitigation. If you want to become disaster resilient, you, you have to focus on mitigation. So you're a state director who's had some experience doing mitigation. So how's that impacting your approach to being a state director today? Uh, mitigation has taken on many forms in the last couple of decades of public safety and emergency management experience, you gotta go back to Project Impact uh, under James Lee Witt uh, in the late 90s. Um, most recently now, it's, it's evolved into resilience. Some of our strongest forms of mitigation though are very uh, long-term views. And I, and I think it's very challenging uh, from a resilience, sustainability, mitigation perspective if we have a building or piece of infrastructure, you just look at um, some of the challenges down in uh, Florida recently with Surfside. Right. Uh, one of the things that you learn in mitigation is um, if you build a new building from scratch, you can build it to the best building codes, uh, the strongest land use standards that in that area, and you're going to put people, property, the environment in a place that are going to succeed based on the hazard dynamics that you're in. But the biggest challenge is our existing building stock and infrastructure that may have been built 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 35 years ago. Um, we have uh, a lot of our society relies on infrastructure that is dated. And, and I think uh, some good examples here in Hawaii, uh, we have a lot of infrastructure that is uh, built on islands that is right by the coast. Uh, many parts of the United States uh, we have a lot of individuals that live by water uh, within 50 miles of a coastline. So as climate change changes some of our baseline hazards, flood, wind, uh, sea level, those type uh, precip rates, all of our existing infrastructure becomes exposed. Uh, if I have a stormwater system in Hawaii that was built for a 10-year flood or a 50-year flood, and all of a sudden that baseline has changed, to replace a stormwater system or the road that sits up on top of it or the other infrastructure, that may be a three, five, seven, 10 year project that is not gonna really help 
the flooding that's going to occur during that time. And I think that as we, we look at some of the, the, the federal dollars that are out there, I think the Rockefeller grants in the last couple of years with resiliency and now the FEMA BRIC program. Okay, acronym, we're acronym free, so. Sorry, the, the Building Resiliency and Infrastructure Communities Program. It's a new FEMA program that's putting a lot of money on the table to mitigate hazards. These projects are, again, they're a three to 10 year type of window. They are not done overnight. So when we talk mitigation, I think the public and maybe some leadership want to see immediate change. And traditionally, some of our strongest mitigation projects are capital improvement projects, capital investment projects that take very long time. So I, finding that balance between what we can mitigate and how we want to mitigate is going to be a challenge. And at the same time, when we roll in uh, resiliency and climate-related kind of filters on these, um, the, the investments that we're making today are going to outlive administrators, they're going to outlive uh, mayors and governors or even presidents. And so I think that, 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 that assumption has to be built into some of these conversations uh, because of the, the infrastructure vulnerability that we have. Um, it wasn't built overnight and you can't change it overnight. Um, and I, I think those are some just really important elements as we talk about mitigation and, and what we want to invest in. Uh, we have to do it, we, we have to be adaptable, uh, but it may take some out of the, out of the box thinking uh, during that time when we're still gonna see impacts before some of the existing building stock can be mitigated or uh, new infrastructure can be put in place. Okay. All right, I got one last question for you. For all those university students or new graduates or people thinking, oh, I'm thinking about emergency management would be terrific. And here we have the, the top man in Hawaii and I'd love to live in Hawaii. Um, when you're looking to hire emergency management personnel for your Hawaii emergency management department, what would be some of the top qualities that you're looking for in candidates? Yeah, so, and I've had a, a great relationship with you, Erica, in the last couple of decades. Um, when I'm looking to hire someone or if someone's new getting in this field, one, it's very dynamic. Uh, you, in one situation, you could be communicating, so communication skills to, to kids, to adults, all the way up to state leadership. Two, solving problems. Uh, Barb Graff, who was mentioned uh, as the director of Seattle, worked with her for many years. Um, I think one of the most important things we do as emergency managers, sometimes we're jack of all trades, masters of none, but we're really good at bringing people to the table to solve problems. And they can be small problems or they can be big problems. The other is just really trying to help people. Uh, one of the unique things about emergency management is you get the opportunity to work with individuals during the blue skies, you know, the day-to-day -day when everything's calm, to some of the worst moments. Uh, if, you, if you've never been uh, in a post-incident situation and with uh, uh, someone in, in the community that's had a loss of life or loss of property, 
uh, you're, you're going to get to see a side of individuals that in many jobs you don't get to see. Uh, and we tend not to be first responders, but we do take on type of a chameleon role where you're put into a situation that is, is very dynamic and fluid. And the last big thing is embracing technology. Uh, there are many ways that I think you can get a leg up, uh, whether it's having some type of uh, computer science background or GIS background. Um, Cybersecurity background. All of those uh, programming, those types of capabilities are going to provide you as we look out over the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years, um, a leg up on, on the competition because uh, where we're going with technology and how we use that to, to kind of solve problems and look at our hazards uh, is going to be very important. Right. Well, I'd say I, I know everybody's looking to uh, add diversity. So how about an old white bald guy? I mean, how many of those do you have hanging around the office? We do have a few of those. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking you know, about me, me. What's my chance of moving away? Well, we do, we do have some reserve corps positions open. We have some leadership positions open. And, and I'd love to do an interview with you, Eric, if you want to come out, so. Very politically correct. All right, again, anything else you want to get off your chest here, therapy session? I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. Uh, emergency management is uh, an evolving field. Uh, there, there are lots of paths you can go down out there. Um, but I, I have two things that, you know, anyone in this field should know is one is to know your hazards and two is to be prepared. Uh, I will leave my parting, parting thought is uh, the one hazard that keeps me up at night out here in Hawaii is tsunami, uh, whether that's locally generated or distant. Uh, it could be from the pack Northwest, Alaska, Chile, uh, New Zealand, or off to the Northwest uh, in Japan. Um, many of the tsunami threats that we face really have nothing to do with Hawaii. They're, they're geologically born in other areas of the Pacific. So um, appreciate this opportunity to share a little bit, but I challenge you all to know your hazards and be prepared. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you to Luke Myers for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. And I trust everyone listening today gained some knowledge about the challenges that face emergency managers on the island state of Hawaii and what they're doing to meet those challenges. And lastly, a reminder to everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today to become better prepared for the next disaster. And in the future, you might be traveling to Hawaii for a vacation. And now you know what to be prepared for if disaster strikes. Thanks for listening and bye-bye. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.